Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your love and your care for us. Uh, we thank you now for this opportunity to study your word together. And we do ask, Lord, that you would, Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted, but give us grace to catch what you're teaching us here so that we would put it into practical usage on a regular basis. So there might be good communications between brothers and sisters in Christ that miscommunication uh, might find an end to itself. And Lord, that your church might be able to demonstrate uh, love for one another as you have called us to do. Uh, Thank you again for what you're doing. We do pray for the young man that uh, uh, had a little struggle this afternoon. Uh, We ask, Lord, that uh, whatever it is that set him off, uh, that you might bring about some resolution in his own heart and mind. And uh, we pray for Wayne, uh, that you might uh, give him some healing. And again, we thank you for your love and mercy and all of that. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so, uh, you know, I am, my official title is the uh, Pastor of Family Life and Discipleship Ministries. And for the first several years, uh, we really emphasized the family uh, life aspect of uh, my ministry, and um, tried a, a lot of things to return the heart of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers, that kind of a thing. And uh, no problem, but it is amazing when people don't want to do what maybe they ought to. Um, after a while, the lack of participation says, okay, this isn't working. Uh, so you pray and Look for other avenues. Um, uh, over the last few years, I would have to say that uh, discipleship has stood out a little bit more to me. And so, uh, first point here is uh, the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, and again, I've already pointed out this is as you're going, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, why does discipleship have anything to do with settling disagreements? Well, we'll, uh, we'll look at why we have disagreements in the first place uh, in a moment, but uh, let's understand that we have been called to make disciples. Uh, what's included in that? Obviously, the, the baptizing, I didn't need to give you a Greek word on that one, uh, because basically it means to place into. Baptism is the first step of obedience, okay? Uh, you're making a public proclamation that you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you've been raised again with Christ, and you're also basically telling the church, y'all, keep me accountable, Okay? So um, that if anyone wanted to say, uh, uh, it, whoever confesses Jesus is Lord, that, that might be a, a public confession, you might say. But he goes on to say, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you uh, always. So uh, let's talk about teaching them to observe. So letter B, discipleship is not equal to evangelism which I would have to say, as we look at church history, I think somewhere in the rush, we got the idea that evangelism, seeing people come to know Christ, was discipleship. It is part of the process. 
but it is not equal to. Notice it goes on to say, and it doesn't end when someone gets saved. Um, if you remember with me in Second Peter, Paul says because of uh, his great and precious promises, um, if we uh, work according to that, we're allowed to be participators in the divine nature and we can escape the corruption that's in the world through evil desires. He goes on to say, therefore... Let everyone diligently add to their faith. Now, when I first got saved, the first thing they wanted to do was get me into a Sunday school class. Nothing wrong with that. And they taught us a lot of the basics on how to study the Bible, uh, taught us, uh, made us do things where we could observe and learn for ourselves and stuff like that. They taught us a lot of things that was excellent material. But guess what Peter says, add to your faith? Virtue. Well, what's that? Moral excellence. Well, what's that? That would be the equivalent to recognizing that there are things in your life when you get saved that need to go. Now, if you love horses and somehow you think that that's what needs to go, well, maybe you need some teaching there, okay? Now, if you're an idolater in that area, okay, maybe it needs to go. But like when I first got saved, um, there was going to the bar, there was dancing, there was uh, inappropriate movies, uh, just a, a lot of things that, look, if you're going to walk with Jesus, these things are not going to help you. And you really need to put off the behavior of the old and put on the new. And, and with some teaching and explanation as to why that's important. But uh, when a lot of times when people get saved, we expect discipleship is going to happen when they come to church on Sunday morning. And that's it. Um, one of the things I have noticed in my time as, as a pastor is we have a tendency to, here's all of the unspoken rules, and if you follow those rules, you're one of us. And if you don't, you're not. Ooh, that's not discipleship. Discipleship is helping them understand why some of these quote-unquote unspoken rules maybe are, well, they're unspoken because they're kind of stupid. Or, yeah, I know no one's ever said anything, but here's the reason why we choose not to do that or, or we choose to do this kind of thing. Uh, when I first got saved, uh, they would tell me that I can't go to the theater anymore. I go, okay, why? And their answer was burlesque. Well, I'm old enough to know what burlesque is. And I promise you, the movies I was going to see uh, were not burlesque. They were action. We were killing people. It was great. Okay? Um, but the theater, the building was the problem, not what I was watching. It's kind of like, wow. Uh, so to, to come alongside and understand, you know, garbage in, garbage out, that might be a reason why, why you want to be really careful what you're watching. Um, it, it's interesting how God has worked in my life over the years. I'd just soon sit down and watch a Hallmark movie today than um, you know, Sly Stone, Rambo th 7, wh whatever it is on these days. Um, uh, you know, I, it's not that I wouldn't watch uh, Sylvester Stallone's movie, but I just soon watch a romance. Uh, they're predictable. They have the same plot in every single one, I understand, but 
I can get through that and my mind isn't going places where it shouldn't go and all that kind of stuff. In fact, a lot of times I sit there and say, now that was really stupid. What he just did to her, what she just did. (laughs) But no, I have not become a woman. I'm just saying. Okay, so discipleship is not equal to evangelism, doesn't end when someone gets saved. So first of all, the word teaching there is matheteuo. Intransitively, it means to become a pupil. Transitively, it means to disciple, to enroll as a scholar, to disciple, to instruct, to teach. So the disciple is the one that is being discipled. The teacher is the one that is teaching. Uh, The word uh, teach here is didasco, and it means to teach, uh, broad application. Uh, When I think of Sheila working with the little ones, she is going across the board, giving them a good foundation for all of the subjects that they ought to be learning. And that would be uh, Matthew, a uh, math, uh, something to do with letters, phonics, okay, um, teaching them some of the basics of reading. Um, I'm not sure that you get into history at that age, but uh, uh, we're not talking about woke stuff or CRT. We're just talking about the foundation for what they should be learning in school. So that's the idea there of teaching, broad application. And then the word for observe there is tereo, uh, to note a prophecy to fulfill a command, to detain in custody, to maintain, to withhold for personal ends, to keep unmarried, uh, to uh, hold fast, uh, keep a keeper, uh, to preserve, uh, reserve, or watch. The idea is you're taking a hold of what they're teaching you for the purpose of doing it. It's not just, I have more trivial knowledge in my head. It's for the purpose of doing it. So uh, that's where we're talking about discipleship. Letter C. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, discipleship would include, now you'll, you might recognize this phrase here, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now that's all straight from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Here's what those words mean. Um, Doctrine, didascalia, uh, instruction, the function or the information, doctrine, learning, teaching. One of the things that you'll learn if you go through our counseling program is every problem is a theological problem. And so the best way to deal with problems is to understand who God is, what he's like, and put into practice the things that uh, you would deduce from that kind of thing. So it's going to include instruction uh, as far as theology goes. Uh, The word for reproof is elektros, proof, conviction, evidence, reproof. This is where you're telling someone they've done something wrong. Okay? Notice, though, you don't stop there. There's correction and epanorthosis, a straightening up again, a rectification, reformation, correction. So this is where you help them. They've done it wrong. You've told them what they've done wrong, and now you're helping them do it right. Okay? And then the last one, instruction in righteousness, two words here, paideia, tutorage, um, education or training by implication, disciplinary correction, chastening, chastisement, instruction, nurture. 
Now, I don't know about you, but the idea of tutorage and chastisement, in my mind, those are like really far apart. And the reason why I say that is uh, in Hebrews, it says, despise not the chastening of the Lord. And when I talk to most Christians, they think of the chastening of the Lord as the two by four upside the skull. Can I tell you something? God, it's not that God's afraid to use two by fours, okay? But that's not his first uh, method. Very often, God uses trials to try and show you what the problem is in your heart so that there can be correction. If you won't listen, well, you're going to get that trial again. And probably again, and probably again, it's when we get hard-hearted and unrepentant that we see the concept of scourging, uh, the two-by-four upside the head, that kind of thing. So when we think of instruction, it's the idea of teaching, training, education, nurture. And of course, if we have to go that route, we can get into the other stuff. And uh, instruction in righteousness, the word there is uh, dikaiosune, equity of character or act, Christian justification, righteousness. So uh, basically, you're teaching them good theology. You're uh, pointing out where they're doing wrong. You're helping them straight straighten up and then you're showing them how to live that's the concepts that we ought to be involved in in discipleship letter d what god has called us to to do he enables us to do now the reason why this is important will become a little bit clearer as we go along because we're talking about settling disagreements we haven't even gotten to a disagreement yet right but notice the word admonish is nutheteo. This is where we get the concept of nutheteo counseling, uh, by, uh, biblical counseling. It means to put to mind, to caution or reprove gently, to admonish or warn. It is used in a variety of passages here. Uh, Romans fifteen fourteen. Now I myself, now listen to what Paul says about the Roman church. This is a church that was not started by uh, any of the apostles. Notice what he says. I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Now, he points out three things that he believes is true about them. And let's face it. The reason why these things are true about them is because the Holy Spirit lives within them. Okay? Uh, He says, they're full of goodness. Uh, They're filled with all knowledge. I don't know about you, but I feel a deficit at times when it comes to that. But it's not that I don't have access to it. I haven't figured out how to sometimes, okay? But if the Holy Spirit's there, then everything that I need is right there. Able also to admonish one another. Again, to put to mind, to caution, reprove gently, to warn. I remember uh, it's been a few years, but I pointed out to a father that he was a little harsh. And having been that way in the past, I was pointing out, you know, there might be wiser ways to handle this situation. Now, I'm not in that situation all week long with that child, uh, but I did point that out to him. Why? 
because if I could see that, okay, I recognize that you think you're doing what's best, but it's coming across rather harsh, then maybe it's something you need to think. Because very often we're blind to whatever's going on in our hearts, and we just, bleh, you know, uh, take care of business. So I put it to his mind. Second Peter one twelve. For this reason, I will not uh, be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now notice, all he's doing here is I'm reminding you. You know this, but I'm bringing it to your mind again. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, look at that. 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This would be equivalent to be filled with the Spirit. Okay? But notice what comes after it. Teaching and admonishing one another. We're going to be involved in mutual edification, lest the deceitfulness of sin harden your hearts. We're going to be about the business of discipling one another, if you want to get technical. Okay? Uh, Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer one another. Again, the only way that's going to happen is as you're letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and you're about the business of putting it to mind for those that need it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Aha, one of the pastor's jobs is to warn you or to put it to your mind so that you can hopefully act on it. 2 Thessalonians 3.15 Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So here's someone that's actually in the context somewhat antagonistic in the church. And if you're going to settle a disagreement between you and him, you're not to treat him as an enemy, but you're to warn him as a brother in Christ. So, uh, okay, the next word is nuthateo. Oh, it's used elsewhere, Acts 20, 31. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. 1 Corinthians 4.14 I do not write these things to you to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Um, Colossians 1.28. Uh, this is one of, my, one of the verses in my uh, philosophy of ministry, if you will. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Notice there is warning and then teaching. Why? Because very often people think that what they're doing is absolutely fine and they're unteachable until they kind of catch a glimpse of, oh, so now what? Well, now I can teach you. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. You'll notice the only thing that's applicable to everyone that you deal with is patience. There are different ways to deal with different people. Uh, Today, we did not have a chance to warn uh, the unruly. Uh, We were attacked by the unruly. Uh, So, uh, number three, admonition. 
Nuthesia. You'll see it's another form of the same word there. Uh, calling attention to, that is by implication, a mild rebuke or warning and admonition. First uh, Corinthians 10, 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples that they were written for our ad- admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. Now, someone's going to look at that passage and they're going to say, what is the children of Israel walking through the wilderness and getting water out of a rock and bread out of dew? And what does that have to do with me? Uh, I remember uh, Jason, he, he come to know the Lord a couple years ago, and uh, I challenged him to be reading Scripture. And Jason is not uh, a slouch intellectually. Uh, he got a, a scholarship going to McKendry, uh one for academics and one for football. He took the academics because he knew you can get hurt in football and then they take your scholarship away. Uh, So he's not a slouch, but he doesn't like to read, which most men don't like to read. So I challenged him to be listening to Scripture on his iPhone as he's driving back and forth to various jobs. And so he starts listening. He gets through Genesis, gets through Exodus, <clears throat> and uh, about halfway through Leviticus, and he goes, those Israelites were just dumb as a box of rocks. I go, yeah, they were. I go, and we're just like them. Yeah, I know, but, <laughs> kind of like, you, you didn't catch it yet, did you? But, uh, you know, that that's the way it is. Uh, a lot of things they go through went through back there, we're just as guilty of the same kinds of things as they were. So that those, those are warnings to us. Uh, Ephesians 6.4, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition, the warning of the Lord. Titus 3.10, Reject a divisive man. The word divisive there is heretic in the King James. After the first and second admonition. So you're going to warn them a couple of times, then you reject them. That's someone that's a heretic or a divisive person. (coughs) Okay, so number two, conflict, a fact of life. Now, the reason why I brought all of the, the initial stuff in first was I want us to see that very often Conflict is God's way of saying, this person needs what you get to offer them. They need instruction in righteousness. They need reproof, correction. Uh, They need some good theology, okay? Or maybe you do, and unfortunately, because we're more concerned with being right in an argument, we don't really deal with the issues, So, conflict, a fact of life. First of all, the unredeemed body. Uh, The law of sin in us. Romans chapter 7, I know we've covered it uh, in Sunday nights. You've read it somewhere in the rush, but at least twice, Paul says, the things I do, it's no longer I who do them, but sin that dwells in me. He's dealing with what he's struggling with as a new creature in Christ, as long as he's in this unredeemed body, that's going to be a struggle. Because though he's saved and he's not under the slavery of, uh, to sin anymore, 
sin still has some influence on what goes on in this body through emotions, through thoughts, all, all kinds of areas. Uh, but he recognizes that it's not him that is going in that direction, the new creature. It is sin in him. Uh, so as long as we're in this body, uh, there's going to be some issues with sin, and therefore there's going to be issues with conflict. Uh, notice letter B. From where does conflict come? You know, it's interesting because the Bible actually asks the question and then answers it in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? Remember that law of sin in your members? That's what he's talking about. Uh, You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So let's take a look at a couple of the words here. The word for desire and lust, uh, there's two words there, hedone, uh, sensual delight, desire, lust, pleasure. And then the word for lust is epithumia, uh, to set the heart upon, to long for, to covet desire, uh, to lust after. Uh, they're basically, though they're different words, they're basically the same thing. Okay? They're a strong desire for something. So, uh, what is the problem uh, inside of you? Your desires for pleasure, that war in your members. Things I want to do, those are the things I don't do. The things that I hate, those are the things I do. There's a law of sin in my members. So he goes on to say, you lust, you desire, you want, but you do not have. Why? Well, we haven't answered that question yet. And here's what happens because you want and you haven't gotten it yet. You murder and covet. Well, the word for murder there is phoneuo, uh, to be a murderer, to kill, to do murder, or to slay. Now, when we have conflict with a brother and sister in Christ, uh, if murder was the end result, uh, well, the police would be up here more often than we'd like to admit. So what does he mean here? Well, we're going to look at a passage in a little bit that talks about, um, you've heard it said of them who are of old, thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, and the result of both of those is exactly the same, (gasps) murder and anger, with your brother without a cause. And of course, we're always going to say, but I have a cause. Yeah, but is it God's cause or your cause? Well, according to this passage, it'd be your cause, okay? So even to hate your brother, that would be equivalent to murder. He goes on to say, uh, and covet cannot obtain. The word for covet there is zelou, to have warmth or feeling for or against, effect, to covet, uh, earnestly to have desire. So we get another word that basically means that you lust after, you, you strongly desire. It's actually the word where we get zealous from, so you really want it, okay? And you cannot obtain, you fight and war. The word for fight here is uh, makomai, to war, to quarrel, dispute, 
uh, fight, strive. The word for war is polemeo, uh, to be engaged in warfare, to battle, to fight, to make war. So again, two words basically meaning the same thing. But again, uh, where do fights uh, come from? Wars and fights come from among you? We're talking about conflict between believers. Now, the next word I want you to catch on the top of the next page is found there in verse 4. Adulteresses and adulterers, or adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, let's understand what friendship with the world is. Uh, When I first got saved, worldliness would have been defined as dressing like the world does, having haircuts like the world does. In today's day and age, tattoos would be worldliness. Um, Beards might still be considered worldliness by some. All those kinds of things. When I, was that? Yeah, external appearance type things. And uh, when I look at Scripture, I can't find that anywhere. But I can find all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are not from the Father. Oh. So what is that all about? I want what my flesh wants. I want what my eyes want. I want everyone else to notice me. That would be friendship with the world. I want what I want. Oh. And see, what caused the wars among us? I wanted what I wanted, and somehow you prevented it from happening, even if you didn't. As far as I'm concerned, you did, and therefore we're in conflict. Okay, so when you make yourself an enemy of God, the uh, word is uh, ekthros, hateful, passively odious or actively hostile, usually as a noun, an adversary, especially Satan, an enemy, or a foe. Now, I'll be honest with you, if you're a believer and somehow you've gotten caught up in the your wants, at that point, when God looks at you, yes, you're taken care of because of the righteousness of Christ. But how is he going to deal with you? As a loving father, what you're doing is odious to him. You do not have to be actively hostile towards God. He hates it. Why? Well, first of all, it causes conflict. Second of all, it's not like his character. Third of all, He knows what's best for you, and you chasing after all of your desires is not best for you. It is amazing as kids grow up in the church and they finally get old enough where I no longer have to do what my parents want me to do. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Kind of like, you know, my kids are all adults, and I hope they still have ears to hear if I give counsel. Now, that's all I do. I I may say, hey, guys, I want you to think about this. I don't tell my kids to do anything. Um, I just ask them to seriously consider something. Why? Because I'm not their boss. But I do see things that they can't see. Why? Because they're not 62. They didn't make those mistakes already. And I can see where they might be repeating the process. So 
going to help them out where I can if they'll listen. But I'm still not their boss. So, but uh, yeah, um, the concept is not actively hostile necessarily as much as passively odious. You'd smell bad. So God's going to deal with you as a loving father. That brings us to our second passage, Galatians 5, 13 to 18. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, think about that for a minute. Don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. What the flesh wants, what the eyes want, the desire for status. Don't use liberty for that. In other words, friendship with the world. But through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the uh, flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the words that are important here are bite, devour, consume. Uh, The word to bite is dakno, to bite, figuratively to thwart. And it's only used in this passage. The word devour is katestio, um, to eat down, devour, literally or figuratively, obviously figuratively, because we haven't become cannibals yet. And this is used 15 times in the New Testament. The word for consume is analisco, to use up, to destroy, to consume, and it is used three times in the New Testament. (coughs) Oh, I swear someday I'm going to get a hernia just by coughing. Oh, boy. So, uh, again, here, here we have Christian liberty, but so often Christians think that liberty means I can have what I want instead of thinking about someone else. And it comes down to bringing about conflict, at which point, once again, it's not loving your neighbor. It is biting, devouring, consuming. Okay? So, letter number three here. What we call church discipline, but really is brotherly love in action. So Matthew 18, uh, 15 through 20, uh, most people look at this passage and say, church discipline. And yes, the last stage is church discipline. But what most people miss is there's two stages before the last stage. Well, actually... The last stage is after the third stage, so, but there's still a lot of things that go on before that. So let's take a look at it. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, okay? So here you have someone that's done something against you. So at this point, you should call the pastor. Email him. Let him know there needs to be a, a meeting among the leadership, Good thing they didn't have email back in Paul's day. (laughs) Okay. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. First step. There's got to be communication. Now, think about it with me. Great commission. Go and make disciples. 
here's your opportunity to teach, to reprove, to correct, to instruct in righteousness. So what are you going to do? Go and tell him how he hurt your feelings. That's how we see this passage very often. And of course, we're now living in a day where my feelings getting hurt are more important than just about everything in the world. Can I say that as Christians, we really don't need to be going down that path with the rest of the world? Okay, if your brother has done something that has been an offense, a legitimate offense, they've sinned. What do we know from Galatians? We who have the Spirit in us are to go to one that's caught in sin with a humble, meek attitude, recognizing, hey, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I could be doing the same thing. So you're going to that person alone. It goes on to say, if he hears you, Now, I have a big mouth. So when I speak, people normally hear me. That's not what it's talking about. You're trying to help this person see what they did was wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but we're pretty blind to our own foolishness. So it may take more than one time to go and help them hear you. You're going to determine if they're unwilling to hear you or if they just don't understand. And at that point, you determine whether or not you're going back to give them another opportunity. If they are not hearing you, as in they refuse to hear you, then we move on to the second step. By the way, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you two or uh, one or two more. Now, Wayne and I probably wish we had one or two more today uh, because we're getting old. (laughs) But uh, the whole point of having one or two more is not so that you have more people on your side. It's so that others who should have a clear mind are able to determine whether maybe your feelings are on your sleeve or, yeah, you know, your brother did this and it was wrong and he really needs to understand that it was wrong. That's the idea. That Notice it goes on to say, um, one or two, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That's the purpose of bringing the other people. Now notice it goes on to say, if he refuses to hear them. So we're not talking about someone that doesn't understand, doesn't see it your way. They are refusing, okay? At which point, now you tell it to the church. The church gives them another opportunity to hear. Now, I don't know about you, but that is three opportunities. And the first one, you may have tried two or three times. Okay, so uh, it goes on to say, if he, uh, yeah, but if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, which means, you know, we don't, 
It's not that we don't have heathen and tax collectors coming to church, but they come because they want to hear the truth. They're not coming just to stay heathen and tax collectors. Now, there are some churches that is the first church of the heathen tax collector uh, come and everything's okay. You don't have change. Yeah, (laughs) but we're not talking about that. We're talking about if he's going to be a heathen or a tax collector, you're not going to be associated with him. He's not going to be, quote unquote, welcome in the church. How do I know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, you might remember, Paul confronts a situation, which, by the way, he heard through gossip. No, he did hear about it. But now as a church leader, he is confronting the situation because the church was not handling it right. A young man is sleeping with his stepmother. And uh, they were saying how gracious they were to allow that to go on in their church. And Paul said, what on earth are you guys thinking? You need to uh, deliver this one under the uh Unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, kick him out of the church. Get him out from underneath the protectiveness of the church, association with other believers, all that kind of thing. Get him out of there. Why? Because now if he belongs to Christ, he's going to be behind enemy lines. And the enemy is going to be given freedom to pound on him. And oh, by the way, this guy comes back to the church repents, wants to get back in the church. And in 2 Corinthians, we find out in the first couple of chapters, they weren't letting him back in. And Paul's saying, please, enough is enough already. You know, he repented, let him back in. Uh, So that's why I believe it does mean kick him out of the church. It doesn't mean, yeah, he can uh, come and sit in the back of the church and we're just going to not, we're going to treat him like an an unbeliever. All right, so that's what you're supposed to do. But notice it goes on. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind in earth will be bound in heaven. And, and the way that's written in the context, in the Greek, is it's already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything uh, that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, I I know a lot of people like to quote that last verse there, but notice the context. Church discipline. Trying to restore an erring brother. That's the context. So that's why I say what we call church discipline, but really is brotherly love and action. How about Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26? You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Okay, so there's your uh, penalty for murder, judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without the cause shall be in danger of what? The judgment, same penalty. Goes on to say, whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, 
lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out uh, of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, the reason why I bring up that passage is in the first passage, you see your brother has sinned against you. Who is supposed to go and talk to that brother that has sinned? You are. Why? Because you know they hurt your feelings, they they sinned against you. Okay? That's why. Now, the reason why that's so important to bring up is, I don't know how many times I have heard through the grapevine that someone was offended. They got their feelings hurt. They didn't like something that was said, whether it be by pastor or myself, usually me, but occasionally pastor offense too. <laughs> um, but you hear it through the grapevine instead of the person coming to you. I remember one time a lady came to pastor and, and let him know how highly, I don't want to use the word offended, it's being used too much, but she was really hurt that um, we didn't come and visit her while she was in the hospital. We didn't know she was in the hospital. I mean, normally when you go to the hospital, they say, is there a church you'd like us to call? Yeah. You tell them Edgemont Bible Church, they call the office. We hear about it. And uh, we'll either go and visit or at least check with the family, make sure everything's okay, that kind of thing. Uh, Another guy got his uh, feelings hurt because uh, about five people from the church visited him and it was a very, very busy week here in the office, and neither one of the pastors visited that person. Got his nose bent out of joint. The church didn't come and visit me. Kind of like, what do you call the five people from the church? Okay? But again, we didn't know. We hear about it later. Why? Because the one that feels as though he was sinned against didn't come and say anything. But notice in the Matthew 5 passage, here you are convicted that you know you've done something that someone else is bothered by. So here you're supposed to go. Now, if the one that's been sinned against is coming, and the one has, that's done the sin is going, what happens? They meet in the middle, right? But see, they recognize, first of all, the need to go and talk to the other person. In this particular case, look, don't even talk to God until you've met, uh, got your situation with other people met, uh, straightened up. That's the idea here. And uh, he goes on to say, <clears throat> first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly. So this is someone that you have made yourself odious to, an enemy to, okay, because of what you've done. Um, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. Now, in this particular case, who's he going to talk to? Well, probably God, okay? And now God's going to hear the cries, and then he's going to have to do business, at which point it might not work out too good for you because God is going to chastise, uh, discipline, however you want to call it. But think about it with me for a minute. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14 to 17. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone falls short of the grace of God. 
lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Now, I want you to think about Esau for just a moment. Uh, How is Esau a fornicator? Well, it tells us right here. Who for one morsel of food sold his birthright? Who for some temporary satisfaction gave up that which was eternal and important. So here I am, I'm on my way to worship God, and I'm convicted that, you know, I I said this and hurt someone's feelings. I should go and deal with them. But you know, I was in my right to say what I said because of what they did to me. We justify ourselves so quickly. We make so many excuses. And before you know it, you are angry with the other person that you hurt. And if you sleep on that just enough, now you're bitter with them. Who did the wrong? Well, you did twice over now. Because you weren't willing to deal with it, you weren't uh, willing to receive the grace of God, now you're angry and bitter, and then you start telling other people. You get other people on your side of the thing. So you become like Esau. For a moment of, I feel better about this whole situation, you're willing to give up that which was important. He goes on to say, uh, for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward... When he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And and just in case you didn't remember the story, I figured I'd go ahead and put in Genesis 27, 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. Verse 36. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Took away my birthright? You sold it for a pot of stew. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then verse 38, and Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now, remember, in this particular case, who did the wrong? Esau did. He sold his birthright, but justifies himself and then turns around and starts telling his dad how Jacob had supplanted him. And that brings us to our last passage here, Matthew 18, 21 to 22. This is following what we read earlier. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. That was a standard rabbinical practice, pharisaical practice. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. It is interesting how many times we will hear of people, Christians, who just can't forgive. Uh, when, when you're in marriage counseling, uh, it might be a husband cheated on a wife and 
She just can't forgive him. Mm-hmm. What does that say about her? We know from uh, the Scripture that she's got a hard heart. So there's a problem there, okay? Because, yeah, she might be able to divorce him because of unfaithfulness and that kind of thing, but divorce was permitted because of the hardness of your heart, not because they did something wrong. <coughs> Mark eleven twenty five twenty six. And whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him. For your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, I imagine you can look at this a couple of different ways. That if you're saved, you're going to forgive. Or you can say, if you're saved and you don't forgive, then at that period of time that God's working on you to bring you to that point of forgiveness. Uh, your relationship is really bleh with him because sin is preventing you from having that relationship. Okay? Uh, some people say that uh, it is only a Christian could uh, fulfill this, and I say only God fulfills this. But he may have to knock us on the head a couple times. Ephesians 4, 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now, I don't know about you, but the longer I've been in the ministry, the concept of bearing with one another in love has a tendency to mean bearing with one another in love. Tolerating, putting up with. Why? Because people can be... You know what I mean? And so when it says that, it it means it. Okay, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. See, we don't have the right to be holding offense. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure that you, uh, for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Here, believers are taking each other to court to secular court over situations. And he's saying, what are you doing that for? That's not shining as a light in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. That's giving them every reason to say, yeah, why bother believing anything you guys got to say? And don't you know we're going to judge angels? Pastor brought that up the other day. Uh, so no, notice Paul's solution. Take the wrong. Bearing with one another in love. That's basically what he's saying here. Back in Proverbs, hatred stirs up strife, conflict, but love covers all sins. Proverbs 17.9, he who covers the transgressions seeks love, but he who repeats the matter separates friends. 1 Peter 4.8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what kind of love covers a multitude of sins? 
He says fervent here. The idea is boiling. So it's not just, uh, yes, we're all Christians and we just love each other. No, no, no. It's, it's got the fire underneath it. It's going. And so, okay, yeah, I'm going to get past my likes and my dislikes, and I'm going to choose to do what's best for the other person without considering the cost to myself. That's what it's talking about. Christ's love, that's what it's talking about. Christ did what was best for us without considering the cost to himself. It's not that he didn't recognize it was a cost, but that wasn't going to hold him back. So when we think of settling conflict between believers, we recognize that conflict comes about because it's a fact of life as long as we're in these unredeemed bodies. And if conflict comes about, we probably ought to be looking at, okay, what's the real problem here? Is there something in my heart that is pulling me away from God and towards what I want instead of just uh, um, walking with Him? Or is God want me to uh, help this other person grow up in their faith? At which point I get to be part of the discipleship process. Because that's what God has called us to. Not only that, he has enabled us to do that kind of thing. Now, the, the reason why we uh, deal with this subject from time to time is because without fail, over the next year, there's going to be conflict between believers. And normally, someone will come and complain to the pastoral leadership. And they want the pastors to do something about it. Okay, that indicates that the Bible doesn't tell them what to do, and they're not able to. So we have to go get the big guns. Can I tell you, as you've seen, clearly seen here tonight, the Bible clearly teaches your part of the discipleship process. Now, either you need to learn something, or the other person needs to learn something. Maybe both of you do. Okay. But we can, as we step back and surrender ourselves to what God wants, instead of just thinking about what we want, we can deal with these things in such a way that we might actually, well, let me tell you a story. When I was a kid, uh, we didn't have bullying rules in schools like we do today. And every now and again, two boys were going to, Punch it out. Can I tell you something? When those two boys got done, usually there was a much better appreciation for the other one than before. Now, why? You know, if it was just a bully always picking on this guy, he finally beats him up, that's one thing. But when this person stand up for what they want, this person stand up, they get into a fight, usually afterwards they become friends. Hmm. The same thing is true when we start dealing with things from a biblical perspective. When we minister to the other person by helping them through the difficulty that maybe they caused, or allowing them to make us a better Christian by showing us maybe our blind spots, when you're done, you've actually ministered to each other. You've actually helped each other. At which point, I can handle that person a whole lot better now. Why? Because I know stuff about them now that I didn't know before. 
And I appreciate the way they've allowed God to work in their lives. That kind of a thing. So whole point being is, over the next year, and if you have a disagreement with a brother or sister, go back to Matthew 18. Deal with it. Now, I, I didn't put in Galatians 6, probably should have, but do it with the right spirit, okay? Because God's enabled you to do it. Uh, don't bring it to the pastoral staff until you've followed the first two steps. At which point, um, then yeah. But how often does it have to go there? Most people will only do the first step one time and they'll just say, forget it. Instead of, we're looking to restore this person. So those are things to think about.